did you uh do your part and do your homework Brett yeah 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 I, I refreshed my memory on the on the on the first one I'd listened to it a long time ago I know was I, it surprising for you because when I went back and listened to it again it's like oh I remember this story and you know every bit of that story exactly. down to the finest detail exactly. and then yeah. you you know it moved to the next and I just found myself I don't know. It was like a greatest hits album. You know, yeah. every word, every song, once you hear it. And, the, but, you know, the first one goes into a lot, of, a lot of jaguar hunting down in Mexico, starting in, I think it was 1956. And uh, him and Charlie Settles, it, uh, you know, and I drove all the, the way intro to, to Charlie to, Settles. Yeah. I drove all the way to Dover, Tennessee and talked to D- Mr. Settles. He's passed now. And uh, I sat down and talked to him. And, and he's mentioned several times in this CD. Mm-hmm. Or, or episode, whatever you want to call it. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't want to give it away, but I forgot about the story when they were going through the rattlesnake infested areas. The rattlesnake, and then and then that he jumps back and goes to like 1936 or something like that, and and does some lion Arizona, hunting, right? Yeah, down below Wilcox uh, yeah. in the Gurio Mountains, I believe, and and lion hunting down there, and then at some point, I they. He talks about tying up a lion, you know, and some guys, not some soldiers, not believing him or something like that, and kind of poking fun at him. And then they made a TV show out of it, and talks about how that 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 TV show or that program he calls it was show shown all over the United States. So it's yeah. something he's kind of proud of. But yeah, that's that's a that's a good one. So there's a lot in the first episode. Yeah, and and they're all kind of the same. I mean, there's a lot crammed into these, you know, short our episodes yeah this is the number the one of 20 right this is the first episode of 20, of 20. Of them, yeah and you know there's another and i think i've mentioned this one time before there's another uh cd that i don't think anybody's ever heard of and it's dale telling a story telling about his family where they came from how many brothers and and and, and a bunch about him and, and a friend of mine has it and uh Maybe, you know, I got that Patreon. If we can get enough supporters to, to, to join my Patreon or support us, uh, I can make an offer to that guy like I did Dale's nephew. And uh, maybe we can get and that one that out and to share it too. I think, I think it'd be good because it gives a little little uh, backstory on them and, you know, who they are and where they came from and all that. Yeah, it's more about his life yeah. than the hunting, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I, it's been it's been a long time since I listened to it too, but I don't have permission to share it. I I have it, but I haven't had permission. But I can talk to to my buddy and see see you know what it'd take to share. You know, see if he would he'd be. Well, I know to there's share. getting to be a pretty big buzz on the Dale E train lately. Good, you know, and we had just uh, good recorded that episode with Ron over at the Hunt and Dog Podcast, and you know that this is like uncovering history. I, like mm-hmm. I said, this, the Brave book, you know, all that, the older stuff that, you know, was lost and not forgotten, but inaccessible. So now yep. we're talking stuff, you know, free to wow. the viewers unless they want there to you support. Go. Yeah. And, 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 you know, that's another thing is, is uh, if they, if they can and they feel like they can and they want to help, I got that Patreon. And like I said, I'm not a real big fan of Patreon, but it's the best thing going. And it's and, born a hundred years too late. It's right? born a hundred years too late on Patreon, and and uh, if you guys could put a link to it in the in the show notes or whatever, that would be great. Yeah. And what uh, about that, your? Uh, didn't you get a new YouTube channel too? Well, what I yeah, what I did is is 
I I created a new YouTube channel. It's called Interviews, Stories, and Tales. And and I'm going to devote that channel to the interviews and and more of the of the that part instead of on my YouTube channel where I you know I have the mules and I hunt and it's kind of little you know like a vlog of 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 my failures really. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> true documentary. You show the bad stuff true. too. I show it all and and. Uh, yeah, so that's that. But the I'm, I'm, I've been doing. I took the Warriors of Elgato, and I've taken short clips, little bite-sized clips that are more easily watched. You know, some guys don't have enough time to sit there and watch an hour, you know, interview, but they can watch, right. you know, two minutes at a time or three minutes at a time. And so what I've done, I've divided them up into subjects, and uh, each guy, and then and then and then I post them on there, and then and then I share them on Facebook, and uh, where everybody can. You're all over the place. Oh yeah, I, it's 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 I I enjoy sharing this information. So, well, we appreciate cool. it. I mean, cool. it really is. I was excited to find these years ago. Now I'm really excited. They're just available for everybody. So, all right. Hope everybody enjoys the first episode. There's going to be a lot more to come. And thanks to Brett over at Born 100 Years Too Late. Let's jump into it. These CDs have been compiled from Dale's 20 tape set that were originally mastered in the 1980s. We have put these tapes on CD media to let all who can hear these famous stories. For those of you who did not know Dale, these tapes are in Dale's own voice. For those of you that were fortunate enough to have met Dale and talk with him, you will recognize his distinctive voice and his unique way of telling these true stories. I can still visualize Dale even now around the campfire telling these stories. So please, enjoy these true stories and realize they were told by the greatest lion hunter ever lived, Dale Lee. Well, now, this is about a hunt that took place somewhere around 56, 57. And it was in the swamps of Nayarit, Mexico. And our guests were two Iowa farmers. Now, one of them was a man that was around... 65 years old, and uh, he was tall and slim and wasn't carrying any extra weight. And his partner was a man that was uh, probably around maybe 45, and he was tall and fairly slender, but he was carrying a lot more extra weight than the older man. And so then I was uh, talking to him about the hunt, and I told him, I said, well, now here is the procedures of the hunt and about how we would call at night. And then if we didn't get an answer, we would take our dogs and make a circle. And I told this older man, I said, well, now this is a rough goal. And if you don't want to go with us, we will try to get a jaguar up close to where you can get to it all right. And he looked at me and he said, now listen. He said, I'm a farmer. And I've worked hard all my life. And I am in good condition for a man of my age to go. And I've trained for this hunt. And so I said, well, then you want to go right with us? He said, I certainly do. That's what I, I come down here to do. I said, well, fine. So the, from our main camp, we went down about two hours by boat. And we had two boats. Now, we had our men and all in one boat, 
and then two Mexican boys and our dogs and another one. And these were kind of flat bottom canoes that I had special made out of a special kind of plywood with uh, plastic glass. And uh, they would carry a good, good weight and lots of pounds. They would carry probably, well, I've had his, in as many as seven people and seven dogs in one boat. And the size of these boats is about 12, 14 inches high. They come up a little bit in the middle and they were four feet wide. <clears throat> well, we went down and we called that night from about two o'clock until daylight and didn't hear anything. So we, the next morning, just as it started breaking day, we took our dogs and started out. Well, within an hour or less time, we hit the tracks of a big male jaguar and it was a running track. And it went into one of the worst parts of the swamps in that area. And I had an old uh, hound there that had been one of my striped dogs and all for a long time. And he was a getting old. And the poor old dog, he seemed to realize when they went into that worst country there, he stopped. And he just stayed there on the edge of that swamp until we finally came out and picked him up. And he was, that was some of his last races. Well, anyway, when they went down into there, they, they went at least two miles right straight away. And they were going fast. And I was a coming along with one old uh, Mexican fella and myself and these two hunters as fast as I could go. And I had Charlie Settle that was uh, working for me from Dover, Tennessee, and a, and a Mexican are running the dogs to protect them. I always sent some fleet-footed people with those dogs to keep them from all getting killed and losing them. So we finally caught up with Charlie and the, and the dogs and this other Mexican boy that was with him. And they had made a bad lose. But instead of having trouble of keeping the old man up, it was his partner. He caused us a lot of delay because he couldn't keep up. And uh, he couldn't keep up with the older man. And he was 45 and the old man was 65. But anyway, when we found the dogs are just a million, <clears throat> got all of them together, and I said, now, whispered to them, I said, now, you fellas take it. Don't talk, because I can tell you, the way these dogs are acting, that thing is a-laying up right here close somewhere, because he's made so many tracks in here that they're having a hard time of finding just which way he's gone, because he just went around and around, and I think that Jaguar's looking for a place to lay up. And I had a little cur, had uh, six hounds and a cur dog. And this cur dog was a, a copper, uh, Springer Spaniel and Shepherd. Real long haired, but he, that water was good for him because he was in the water all, all the time. And he was a Jaguar dog. But he didn't bark on anything but a jump track. So we just stood there real quiet. And I imagine maybe a hundred yards from us. Down a minute, they just went right straight away and they were running. And this little old cur dog was saying, yip, yip, yip. 
and he didn't bark on anything but a jump track. And I said, boys, they're jumped. Let's go. Well, we went after them as fast as they could, and that thing run in front of them for at least, I'd say, at least three-quarters of a mile before they, they stopped him. And uh, they treated him then, and he was a good specimen. So Charlie settled in this Mexican beat us our ways, and we came up and walked right up to the, within 20 feet of the foot of the tree and up about, I'd say 30 feet, 25 to 30, to this Jaguar right broadside. And I had a, I was a carrying the rifle, and I had a 35 Marlin that shoots the 35 Remington ammunition. And Charlie settled, he had a, uh, the same kind of a gun. And those are real good Jaguar guns because instead of a real high-powered rifle, when you're shooting through leaves and things at a Jaguar, they won't deflect like a real high-powered rifle will with, with it's got a smaller bullet, and they do shoot a big bullet. They shoot a 200-grain bullet. So all right, then, <clears throat> we stood there and looked at it for just a little bit, and I whispered to that old man, <clears throat> and I loaded the gun and let the hammer down. And I said, now all you've got to do is pull this hammer back and raise up and pull that trigger. If you want to shoot again, you just throw that lever and it's ready to go. And uh, I said, well, now, get ready to kill him. He said, well, why do you want me to shoot him? I said, well, the best shot would be to shoot him right in the head. All I want is skull. I said, all right, then <clears throat> shoot him right fairly low down in the chest, right behind that four leg there, and go right in to his lungs and his heart. Well, that old man raised that gun up, and it just made a circle, and he couldn't no more hold it still than he could fly. And I said, take it down. And he took it down, and I said, well, now, study down a little bit and look at that thing. Now, you can kill it because it wasn't over 35 feet from him. And every time that he would raise his gun, instead of settling down, well, he'd shake more. And I looked down to his knees, and his knees is just a, just a trembling, just a wobbling, like they're going to bump together. And he was even a shaking, plumb down into his shoes, and that mud is just saying, squish, squish, squish. And I just knew that he couldn't kill that thing to save his neck. And finally, I whispered to him, and Charlie Settle was standing there and off to our left a little bit, and kind of little back farther from the Jaguar than we were. <clears throat> and I said, uh, let that boy help you when you shoot, let him help you kill that Jaguar. He said, no, sir. I don't want anybody a shooting my Jaguar. I said, all right. I said, yeah, you kill it then. I said, can you kill it? He said, I certainly can. And I said, well, uh, where are you going to shoot it? He says, I'm going to break his neck. I said, well, that's a good shot. I said, but now, listen, when that Jaguar dives out of that tree, and he's going to just as soon as that gun goes off, don't shoot into those dogs on the ground unless I'm right there with you and tell you to shoot, because you're more apt to kill a dog than you are the Jaguar. He said, all right. So I said, let him have it. 
Well, he raised that old gun up and course it was just a shaking and a shimmering as it put it up to his shoulders and he pulled that trigger and that jaguar just dived out of that tree and hit right in front of Charlie Settle. And old Charlie shot at him and missed him right, right in front of him. And away the dog and the jaguars went, went and they did go down into an awful bad place where you was going through that mud up to your waist. And if you wasn't careful, it was a lot deeper. And they, but they didn't go over about 75 yards, and they stopped him. And oh, that jaguar was a growling, and them dogs was a hollering and a bawling and a screaming. Now the terrible, the noise was something terrible. And now the minute I heard the shot down there, and we worked our way on down to the jaguar, and it was a laying there, and the hounds was chewing on it. And several of the hounds were scratched up, but none of them were, were hurt bad. And uh, I went to looking to see where he was shot. And that old man had fixed him to where he couldn't have bit one of your dogs because he'd hit him right out in the point of the lower jaw and crossways and just shattered that jaw. I mean, it was really broke real bad. And then there was a hole up in the side of his head and that's where Charlie Settle shot him when he finally killed him. And this old man, we was examining him, and, and this old man said, well, now listen, says, here's something that I can't figure. He said, look, he said, I hit that thing right up in the side of the head, and it went down and broke his lower jaw, and still he run like that and fought those dogs like that until he died. And his partner turned around and looked at me, and I didn't say anything. And his partner just put his uh, finger up to his mouth, like for me to not say nothing, and uh, to be quiet. And so I didn't say anything. And I, all I said to the old man, I can't, that's, that's a hard thing to figure out. So we gutted that thing and got it back up there and put it on a pole and these four Mexicans took turn about carrying one into the pole and we finally got it out and got it back to camp and took care of it. And that old man was so excited that he never knew that Charlie Settle ever fired a shot. And he shot twice. And that old man left there not knowing that there was any shot fired but his. And how a man can get that excited is more than I, than I can figure. I, I just can't figure those things out. But, of course, all men are not built alike, and they don't act alike. And so, all right, we, then we went on back to our, fly, to our main camp, and the next night we came down to the same place. And uh, that was the, then that would have been the fourth day of their hunt, and they had a two-week hunt. <clears throat> and this was his partner's time. So as we was going into there, we had to, we was a pole in this boat, and the old man that was, that called for me a lot, that was a real good caller, there was strong competition between this old man and myself. <clears throat> he tried to tell me that he is a better Jaguar caller than I was, and I, I just laughed and tell him that, no, he wasn't, that I was better than he was. But anyway, going into this, to where we was going to stop our boat, and that's as far as we could go back in there. 
Well, uh, just before we got to where we took our dogs out, a jaguar roared, but I didn't even hear it, and I was just dead on my feet for sleep. And as we docked the boats and took every, the men out and all of our dogs and drove stakes and tied them, <clears throat> this old man come up, come in and said, uh, Say, did, uh, are you sleepy? I said, well, I'm so sleepy. I can't hardly hold my eyes open. He said, well, why don't you let me walk out here a ways and call for a while and see if I might get the, the answer of a Jaguar? Well, now, he didn't tell me until afterwards. Well, he didn't tell me at all. But another Mexican did, told me that a Jaguar had already answered the call. <clears throat> So I had a boy that had come down from Tucson that was about 21 or 2 years old to help me. And that is his first night out. So he asked me, says, can I go with Pascasio out there when he's a-calling and see what happens? And I said, well, sure, go ahead with him. So he and Pascasio, away they went. And when they got out there about, oh, well, I'd imagine there's out there 400 yards, maybe 500, and on kind of a flat in jungle all around him. And they went to calling, and they got the answer of this Jaguar right away. And I just went over and put up four sticks and a mosquito net up and put a blanket on the ground, and I called under that blanket, and I went right to sleep. And the rest of them was out around the campfire there, and I, and Charlie settled in the two hunters and two or three Mexicans, males are talking and just standing around the campfire. Well, they hadn't been gone so very long until I heard this old boy that had just come down on his first trip a running. And he had big feet anyway, and I bet I heard him from out there a hundred yards, and they were saying plop, 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 plop. And boy, he was really picking them up and, and putting them down. And he went up to the campfire, and he asked them where I was. And they said, see that mosquito net out there? Of course, he'd already woke me up running. They said, well, he's under that mosquito net. So this boy walked out there, and he nudged me with his toe. I was laying right on the ground on a blanket. And I said, what do you want? He said, we've got a jaguar roaring and an answer out there. And Pascasio sent me back after you to tell him just what to do. I said, okay. So I jumped up and uh, away we went. We got back out to Fuscotville there and uh, called quite a few times and not another roar, not another answer. So it wasn't good. It just began to tinge a little bit in the east daylight. So I said, let's go. I said, Pascasio, do you know where we can go to pick up that track? He said, I'm sure that I do. And I said, how long will it take? Well, he said, it won't take long from when we leave that camp there to where we're out there to where I expect to pick up that track. And I said, okay, let's go on back. So we went on back to camp. And uh, it began to get lighter. And I said, come on, boys, if you're going to eat anything, eat it. By God, let's get ready to go. And uh, so I was having a little something to eat. And now in a minute, we heard a Jaguar roar, and it was a right there, right, right close to us. And that thing had come on and come right straight towards us. And it was the same one. It was a big female. 
And Pascasio just jumped up and grabbed his sword and run around behind some bushes there from us and made a call. And we we were all just standing there, and by that time you could see good. And now a minute around that bush come old Pascasio, and what I mean he was really running. And I told them guys, I said, look, he's seen that thing. <laughs> well, right down off to our left was a big mud flat that the water, there wasn't any water there, but there was still mud. <clears throat> and I seen one of the, the, the big old dog there that I was using for a strike dog. He is a sitting there looking around, and down the minute he hit the end of his uh, chain, and it's a wonder he hadn't jerked that stake up, and I looked down where he was looking, and there run that jaguar across that flat. And while though, if that guy had a gun, he could have shot at it. It wasn't over maybe 125 yards from us, and we watched him run there for 50, 75 yards, <clears throat> and I just jumped back there and turned old Russell loose. He was a big white and black-spotted dog, and he was broke off of raccoons and, and was and he didn't strike anything in there but a, a jaguar or an ocelot. And uh, this little cur dog, Frisky, was a-laying there, and when old Rustler broke the run, well, Frisky jumped up and took half him, and we just turned the rest of them loose as fast as we could in the race's on, and they didn't run that thing 300 yards till they put it up a tree. And in course, it wasn't bad going either, and in just a little bit while we were there. And we walked right up to that, right up pretty close to it. <clears throat> and uh, I handed this old man's partner this gun. I said, can you kill that thing? Well, he says, I sure can. I said, okay, do it. And be, if you can, be sure that it's dead when it hits the ground. And he raised up, and he was just as steady as a man could be. And when he pulled that trigger, he hit that jaguar where he wanted to. And when the jaguar hit the ground, well, it was dead. And uh, so they had, that was the end of the fourth. That was the, the starting of the fourth day's hunt. And they already had their two jaguars. And so their hunt was over because that's, that's what they come there for. So within there, after they left, what? Well, we located some more for the next party. And that was the end of a good successful hunt. Well, this hunt took place probably in uh, 35, 34, 35, 36, somewhere around here, around there. And now we were uh, uh, hunting in Arizona. This is, we were lion hunting and we were hunting in what they called the Glura Mountains. And that's right close to the town of Wilcox, if you look on the map. <clears throat> and there was a fellow from uh, uh, Florida come out there. His name is Ray Barnes. And years, uh, several years before that, two of my brothers had been down into Florida and done some panther hunting down there, which is the mountain, they call them panthers, and it's our about the same as our mountain lions. And one of his brothers hunted with their brothers down there. So this Ray Barnes come out there and, uh, no, Charlie Barnes, the other one was Ray. 
and he was over there helping Clay and I hunting for this bounty. Well, that day he was with me, and we hit a, a fairly good line track, and it was in June, and that's one of the hot times of the year down there. But we had some good hot weather dogs, and they were trailing this line pretty good, and they went through a big, huge bunch of bluffs, and we couldn't get around without losing our dogs or and go through it with the horses, so we just jumped off and tied our horses and took care from a foot. And there were, we'd been killing quite a few big rattlesnakes in there, and they were uh, kind of rusty, black-looking color from the formation that they were in, I'm sure caused it. And they were good big rattlesnakes, and you would call them the, the black-tailed rattler. And so uh, there were some of these lechugias, and that's kind of a little cactus, kind of like uh, uh, this mescal formation, only they're right low on the ground, and they have a stalk sticking up in them, and when that stalk dries, there's rattles on the end of them, and they'll kind of rattle like a rattlesnake. And as we was going along through some of these, he reached out and broke off one of them, and they rattled. And I just stopped, and he is standing right behind me, and I said, hey, wait a minute, Charlie. I heard a rattlesnake, I believe. So I had a rifle, and I took and poked all around out in front of me, and I kicked the bushes, and I listened. And in the meantime, he took out his pocket knife and shot the end of this thing and still had the rattles on it. And, of course, I wasn't paying attention to him. He was standing right behind me. And I said, well, Charlie, I must have made a mistake. I must have just imagined I heard a rattlesnake. But I sure thought I heard one. And I started out, and just as I stepped out over this place where I thought the snake was, he just reached out and jobbed me right in the bend of the leg, of, of my right leg, with that sharp-ended stick while it went through my trousers and uh, brought blood on my leg. And, the, of course, the instant he done that, I thought he's a rattlesnake, and I just rose right straight in there, and the, these little bushes is about two and a half feet high, I imagine, maybe between two and a half and three feet high. And I cleared a whole bunch of them right close. And I, I must have jumped eight or ten feet, because I just come And as I was in the air, this is what run through my mind. Bit by rattlesnake, two or three miles from our horses, and five or six miles from the horses to count, and me bitten by a rattlesnake. And I could even imagine that the rattlesnake was hanging to my leg, and while I was in there, I was slapping at my leg, and of course I'd already hollered to him, look out, Charlie, a rattlesnake's bit me. And when I landed and I looked around and looked for the snake and all, there he stood laughing with this lechugia stalk in his hand. And I just trembled like a leaf. That's one of the scaredest I've ever, ever been in my life. And I was just trembled like, so I just walked over and I sat down on a big rock and I looked at him and I said, listen, Charlie, I said, I should just blow your head off and swore up and down, you committed suicide because there wouldn't be any witnesses. But I had to sit there quite a while before I had strength enough to really get up 
and won after those dogs. And then we we went on and we followed them until about three o'clock that afternoon. And finally the track just burned up and we just got our hounds and finally made it back to our horses. And a little after dark, well, we rode back into camp. And so that was a hunt that didn't turn out with any kind of an animal either. Well, now, I tell about the calling of the Jaguar. Now, this is what I mean by calling them. Now, this is supposed to be another Jaguar, and that's what they think it is. And they will, not all the time they will answer, but I've called up lots of them, and I've had other men call them up. And it'll really work, and it helps when you're hunting them, because you can call them up and have a good fresh track to put your dogs on. And so this is what they sound like. Well, now, this is the way that uh, they go when you're calling them, trying to get them up. And then when you get them up close to them, well, then I'll show you how you do and not go through the whole strings of roars. And so this is the way you do when you're just trying to call them and get them to answer when you figure they're quite a ways off from you. up to where you hear them give that growl, well, then you know they're right close to you. So when you, if you want to draw them on up any closer, you go like this. Mm -hmm. And folks, I have literally called them right up to me. Well, over over the smaller end of this gourd, I either put the drum head or a cat hide, and right in the middle, I punch a hole, and I run a, a little horse hair, that, a flat rope that is about a quarter of an inch wide and flat, and it'll be a couple of feet long, and I put it through there and come out the other end of the gourd, that it, it's open with a bigger hole about eight inches across. And uh, then on that horse hair, well, I put beeswax. And then on the beeswax, well, then I put rosin, just like the fiddlers use that they put on their bows. And I rosin it and beeswax it up real good. And then I rub my hand. It's my right hand that I use. And I rub my hand with that beeswax and that rosin, and I try to get it to where my fingers will vibrate when I rub them growling and getting up close to you. Now, when I first started out, I used a, an ox horn. And down from the end, little end of the ox horn, about, oh, I'd say five or six inches, and, it, and out on the, the bow side where it's bending, 
you make a, a hole go into it and that hole will be about the is bigger round oh a little bigger round than my middle finger and then you call into it with your mouth and you let the run it through that gourd i mean that horn and when it comes out the end of it that is the volume to it now i've had awful good luck of using both of them but the reason that i finally went to the gourd is after i would call for several hours at night and then the next day my vocal cords would be so bad that if i said good morning to you i'd say good morning how are you this morning and that didn't work very good so i went to using the gourd and then i've used this gourd for many years but the closest jaguar that i ever called to me and up close to me i was using a horn and that was in nicaragua central america well now i've used these calls in several different countries i've used them in mexico i've used them in uh, british honduras and i've used them in nicaragua and i've used them in costa rica and i've used them in bolivia south america and I've also used them in Venezuela, South America, and I've also used them in Colombia, South America. And certain places, maybe the the horn might work a little better. But overall, and every place that I've been, well, I take the gourd. I think the gourd is the top when it comes to calling the jaguar. Oh, well, now this hunt took place somewhere around in the early 60s maybe 61 62 somewhere along there and it took place in the swamps of nayarit mexico and it took place right along the edge of a lake called Agua brava well now i want to tell you how this Agua brava is formed is you're going down the west coast of mexico you're going north and east that's the way the coastline runs there is it goes down it narrows up and so down just below between Mazatland and San Blas now Mazatland is in uh, Sinaloa and and, uh, we go along the edge of that lake and the way we do it we will have two boats the lead boat will have the men and all in it and the collar and back behind us anywhere from 50 to 150 yards will be two mexicans in the dog boat and they'll come along in behind us and they will be farther out in the water than the boat that's got the collars and all that we're probably uh we'll probably be 100 yards from the edge and the dogs will probably be 200 yards out there and so we one one night we were going along the edge of this lake of calling and we'd only been a calling possibly an hour and we got one to answer us and he just huffed and puffed and uh and came right up to the edge of the water and when he we saw that he was going to come in close to us we just started tattling you don't want to use your outboard motors or anything then 
because you'll scare them. And so we'd paddle along while we could paddle as fast fast and faster than that jaguar could walk. So the dog boat got out about 100 yards from us and we were in a little behind us and we were about 100 yards from the shore and coming along and we were towing him right along and doing good. And we had towed him about at least an hour and a half and covered quite a little distance. And we wanted to keep just towing him along until it got daylight and then we'd whoop in behind him and take after him. Well, we come around the kind of a point there, and there was a, a fishing camp. And I said, oh, boy, we didn't know it was there. I said, listen, fellas, they're going to booger that jaguar. They're going to scare it. <clears throat> and uh, this is as far as we'll be able to go. <clears throat> and calling that jaguar and towing it along. And uh, one of these Mexican boys says, I believe if we'd ease in there and tell them what's taking place, and for them to be right quiet, that I think that Jaguar would come down here and just walk around that camp and come right on after us. I said, a good deal. If that'll work, we can try it. So we eased in there right easy, and I told this one Mexican what to tell them. And so we didn't talk loud, because that jag- we thought that Jaguar was probably close enough that you could hear him talking if he was talking. And he said, uh, told them Mexicans what was happening. And, and says, uh, told them what to do. And we backed that boat up to paddle back out into the water. And I didn't know it, but there's an American there fishing with these Mexicans. And he raised up and said to me, he said, you go home. I'm a fishing. Oh, boy, that just, that really did fly over me. What I mean, I got mad. I said, well, now, I would really tell that guy a few things if it wasn't for scaring that jaguar, but I know good and well it's scary. So I'm not going to say anything to him. So we just eased back out there into the water quite a ways, and I said, boys, it's no use of trying to call that jaguar by that camp because I know they're going to scare him, and if we keep calling him on down here and he's back up yonder quite a ways, it won't take him long to be here. And I know that's, I know what'll happen. So let's just ease back out here in the water and quit calling. And then we'll go back up when it gets daylight enough and get in behind him and turn him loose. So we, we did that. And I imagine we sat there for at least three quarters of an hour. And it just beginning to tinge in a little bit daylight in these, just beginning to tinge a little bit. And I don't know why that Jaguar took him that long. But now in a minute he roared right out on the bank and see we had went back. Had him back up a ways the way the Jaguar was coming from and went out into the water probably 150, 200 yards and stopped. And her dog boat was on out beyond us. And I don't know why that took that Jaguar, but now in a minute he roared and he really cut loose and he was right on the bank right opposite us which meant he was only maybe a quarter of a mile from that fishing camp. And I said, well, boys, let's just ease back up a little ways, and we'll go in the land right up yonder where I knew. And there was an opening there that run up and down kind of the parallel of uh, 
of Agua Brava, but just right on the other side of that opening, which in places it wasn't over 100 yards wide, was jungle and, and swamps and good jungle. So we eased back up our ways and eased over there and got out. And right there is his tracks where he's walking right down towards that peace camp. And one of these Mexican boys said, let's turn them loose, let's turn them loose. I said, now, wait a minute. Let's just think this thing over a little bit. I said, well, now, if he went down to that fishing camp and they scared him, I said, he'll run back this way. So we just walked right straight across that opening and back over there about, a, a well, less than 100 yards. Right there was his tracks where he had done exactly what I told him he, he would. They went down there and scared him. And he was running right back up the other side of that flat, parallel the way he'd come down. And he was running. So we just turned around and walked right back up on his tracks for, I'd say, 100 yards. And he was running all the way. And now in a minute, he stopped and started walking and walked a little ways and then turned into the jungle. I said, that's it, boys. Run and get those hounds. And uh, the hunter was right with us. So they brought up the hounds, so I said, well, I'm going to let old Brownie start this track. And I'm not going to take him jaguar hunting anymore. That's his last, this is going to be his last jaguar race because he was done for. So it turned Brownie loose. And old Brownie picked her right up, and he went to, of course, his right fresh track. And he went to barking and uh, going as fast as he could, which wasn't very fast. <clears throat> and uh, let him get out for at least 100 yards, maybe farther. And he was just uh, barking and uh, going as fast as he could. And I uh, turned those other dogs loose, and that was a good fast bunch of dogs. And, of course, they just closed that gap just like a trained pass of triumph and motored right up on poor Brown and just went right on by him. And within 30 minutes, them, other, them others were treed. We got down there with the hunter, and we got this jaguar killed, and it wasn't very far from, from where we took her boats out, uh, left her boats, and they jawed with Bravo. So we packed him back there with a, on a pole and put him in one of the boats and getting ready to pull out for camp. And here come this American and a little Mexican boat and a little old foot putter, and they come by, and they waved at us, and I run out and shook my fist at that old boy, and I said, well, you died danged American. And I turned around one of them Mexicans, I said, start up that boat, start up that. He said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to kick him. I said, and then I'm just going to go around and around him out there with those waves. Why, he said, you'll turn that thing over. I said, that's what I intend to do. Then if he don't like it, I'll hit him on the head with a paddle. That Mexican said, now, don't you lose your temper like that. Because if you done that, that would cause you to get in lots of trouble because you might drown that guy. And if you did, well, we would be in the bad trouble. He said, he's not worth getting uh, or hurting him over for the trouble he'd cause. And so I uh, said, okay. And so they went on. We loaded our dogs up into the boat and got our Jaguar men and dogs and everybody loaded, and we pulled back for camp, and that's what I call the race of the Iowa Brava. All right, this is about a hunt that 
took place in the Curiacow Mountains. This took place somewhere around 1935. Carl and I had been a hunting for the old biological survey in New Mexico, and we came back home for a while, and Ernest and Vincent, our two uh, older brothers, they were working for the biological survey in Arizona. So we thought we'd help them there for a while before we went back up to our job. So these Cherry Cow Mountains run north and south. And they, they rise up to 10,000 feet. Well, this was in the summertime, and uh, it gets pretty hot down that far south. So we took a big camp and went to the top of the main divide and then went south out to a big ridge they called Snowshed Ridge, in which was on a good government Forest Service trail. And out on the end of this ridge, the highest part of it, there was an old Forest Service cabin that had been built years and years before that. And it wasn't just a one-room cabin. Well, that's where we count. And uh, I believe that Carl helped me move up there, but he went back the same day. And he didn't get back in home, back to paradise then, till way late that night. And I stayed in camp, and the next morning then, I got up and took, I think, seven dogs and started hunting, and I went back around the main divide back towards home for five, six, seven miles, somewhere in that neighborhood, and I dropped off into the head of the big canyon there on a government trail that, that they call Cave Creek. And below there, there's lots of high, rugged bluffs that are that is beautiful scenery and they're got lots of color to them reddish color and i wasn't over a mile from that main divide until i picked up this line track well right away i saw that it was a big male line i found this track and i've got the dog started on the right end of the track now listen folks some fellows will tell you that they've owned dogs that will not backtrack a line. But when they tell you that, they don't know what they're talking about. Because me and my brothers have handled, I have no idea, but thousands of hounds. And we have never owned one that would not backtrack a line. And I don't know the reason that they cannot tell the, from one end of the line track from the other unless it's some way that a line scent lays in their, their tracks different to most animals. Now I have seen hounds that would backtrack a bear that had but 90% of the time when you hit a bear track your dog will go on the right end of it. Well that don't apply to lines. So I've got them they, on the right end of the track. Now this track was not a fresh track, and they could just carry it by seven good cold trailing hounds just about as fast as I could keep up with them through some rugged country, and I was horseback. Well, they just kept up a pretty steady pace, and when it got time for me to have lunch, well, I couldn't stop. 
long enough to have lunch because my dogs would get too far ahead of me. So I just jerked out a sandwich and ate it on the dole. And there were quite a lot of water in them high stream uh, canyons up there and enough water for the dogs and I and when we'd cross one of them where we'd all get a drink. Well, just about sundown that evening, I saw the way that line was a-going and he was a-kind of uh, in under this big snowshed ridge then and was a-going south. So I took him off and I went back to camp and that evening got back in there just as it's getting dark. Well, hell, it came back up from paradise. So the next morning, he and I got up, and we left there, and we always had at least two packs of hounds from that to four. We just, back in way back in there, we had just two packs of hounds. I think we had 14, 14, 15. We took that other pack the next day, and we cut in while we knew for sure pretty well the way this line was going, and we picked up his tracks. And it, they carried it about the same as they did the day before, just a good steady pace, which means in a, through that rugged country, probably 10 miles would be about the distance that they trailed it the day before. And that day then we wound up about the same distance, and they were still carrying that track, and we took them off. By that time, we had passed through a the south fork of Cave Creek and into a big drainage they call uh, Price Canyon that run south from the... And uh, so we finally took them off and we were closer to camp than I had been the day before, but we, it was a steeper climb and we got into camp really later than I'd got in before because we had such a steep, steep climb to get back out to the top of this high ridge. And we did it probably three quarters of an hour after dark when we got in. So we had to take care of everything and we had to see that our saddle animals were staked, uh, were hobbled out in good feed. And of course we had grain farm and we had to feed and water our dogs and look at their feet, and if any of them needed doctoring, we'd doctor them. Then early the next morning, we pulled out, and we cut in front of that line with another pack of dogs, somewhere around two miles, I'd say that day, in front of where we'd left it before, and we picked up his tracks, and that day, we done all of our trailing in the drainage of that Price Canyon. Well, about the same time, about sundown that day, we were then closer to camp than we'd been the, the, the two days before. And we took them off in this big, deep canyon and wasn't too high climb till we come out on the ridge between Price Canyon and West Turkey Creek. And we hit a good government trail and we got back into camp just when it's getting pretty good dark. Well, the next day then, when we pulled out, well, we had to go back this government trail, so we just followed it out, back out the, on this government trail and picked up his tracks on that government trail. Well, in a little while, it seemed like that the track got better, and uh, the hounds speeded up. 
and we didn't know just exactly what was causing that track to get better unless he had fooled around in his travels, because that line was a traveling. And he may have been uh, looking for other lines the way he was a traveling, because he was just making a big swing. And he had just really swung right around their camp. Well, about two o'clock, they kept a getting faster, and finally the hounds got so far ahead of us that a part of the time we couldn't even hear them. And we were riding just as hard as we could. But folks, that's rough, rugged country, and you can't ride through it too fast. <laughs> well, about two o'clock that afternoon, we come up on the edge of a big deep canyon that they call Mormon Creek that runs into West Turkey Creek, and we heard them jump way down in some big bunch of bluffs. And they come out of there really running, and we knew that they had that line jumped. Well, they ran probably a mile somewhere in that neighborhood and the trees. And we got down there, finally got to them, and we killed that line. Well, now our job was that we were supposed to see what the, all of these lines had been a feeding on. Now, see, our two older brothers was working for that biological survey, and this would be one of their lines. So we came open, and then we knew his delay that day, or that that night on his travels, he had just killed and eaten a bear cub. And what I mean, he ate all of that cub. And he'd, in one little hind foot that was about three and a half inches long, maybe four, somewhere, I never measured it. He just bit it in the middle and swallowed it. And just one little toe, one out, little outside toe was gone, and the foot was just perfect. So I took that little old foot out with his stomach and put it in my shop pocket, and the juices from that lion's stomach, I guess, kind of preserved that little old foot or something, and it never spoiled, never smelt or anything, and I carried that little old foot around in my pocket for several months, at least four or five months. And anybody gets talking to me, well, then I'd show them that little barefoot. And uh, now that sh shows you how these lines will cover the ground. Now, these male lines will range what's farther than, than your females. And they will go from one of these ranges of mountains down in that country to another range of mountains. And they, they figure that they'll... One mountain line will sometimes range as far as from 150 to 200 miles. And uh, they, they've been known to do that by tagging them. Now, one line in Nevada had a kind of a summer range that he'd make big circles in in a winter range. And they were 100 miles apart. So that shows you what you're bucking when you're line hunting. You've got to know their pathways and find where they're traveling to make a success of hunting mountain lions and also make a success of catching your clients' mountain lions when you take them out for trophies. <clears throat> well, now, I can think of uh, quite a few right now, the interesting people and more or less the important people of the, of the United States that uh, 
that we have guided on hunt, on one hunt while we had uh, Gary Cooper, and with him was Robert Taylor, and they were real good sports, and we got and we got them a mountain lion after quite a, a chase, and and it took us a few days to do it. Then a guided uh, a boy by the name of Steve Brodgett that was a cousin of Franklin Roosevelt. And then at one time, while we guided R.R.M. Carpenter and his wife, and at that time, R.R.M. Carpenter was uh, the vice president of the DuPont Powder Company, and his wife was a DuPont. And then the, this boy that owns the Philadelphia Phillies now, was R.R.M. Carpenter's son, and we guided him when he was just, uh, or just grown, 20, 21, two years old. And so we have guided quite a few of the prominent people of the United States. <clears throat> now, I, I talked to John Wayne one time at a, on a movie set there that when they were showing there in Arizona, it, right close to Fort Huachuca there, there's a little kind of a round valley in between some mountains there, and they called it Rain, they call it Rain Valley. And they had this big movie location set up there. And so I went out there to talk to John Wayne, and they was waiting until the light was just right to start in on a, a scene. And I walked up to the outfit there and I asked an old boy, I said, which one of these fellows over there is John Wayne? And he pointed him out to me and he was sitting down talking to a group there. And I just walked over and, and introduced myself to him and he jumped up and shook hands with me. And then I had a few hunting pictures there and we sat down and I was telling him about the hunting and showing him those pictures, and all oh boy, those old boys there that was running that outfit, they really got mad at me, and I finally had to get up and go because John Wayne was uh, talking to me when he was supposed to have been out there shooting the scene, and those promoters, they, they, did, uh, they, they didn't like that very good. They said I was distracting everything, so I finally left. And uh, I never did get to take him on a hunt, but uh, he seemed like an awful nice, a nice guy. And what I mean, he is a big man. <clears throat> I was about six one, and when he got up and shook hands with me, well, I had to look up at him. So he must have been about six four or something like that. And then he was not only that, but he looked like he is big and husky. Of course, that's been several years ago.